Hi there, fact-checking friends, and welcome to the FFS Show podcast, a podcast about misinformation and fact-checking brought to you by The Ferret. I am one of your hosts, Ali Bryan, and joining me as usual is Mags Taylor. Hi, Ali. So what are we looking at this week? Well, there's an election coming up. There is. I heard about that. Yeah. So last week we saw a televised leaders debate and the leaders of the five main parties were were making rather a lot of claims. So we've been looking into those. And Ali, do we have more of your interview with David Gilbert? Yes, we do. I'll be talking to Vice News reporter David Gilbert about QAnon and how it's managed to infiltrate the UK's anti-vax movement. So, Mags, you were looking at a claim by Nicola Sturgeon uh, in the debate, weren't you? What was she saying? Yeah, she was challenged by Tory leader Douglas Ross on her government's record on quite a few areas of public spending. But in part of her response, she said that Scotland is spending more on health per head than the rest of the UK. And is what she said true? Well, (laughs) as with many of these claims, it kind of depends on how you're looking at it. So if you break the United Kingdom down into its constituent nations, then no, actually, it isn't true. Um, On a per person basis, Scotland actually spends the second smallest amount of of the four nations. Uh, Northern Ireland spends the most, £2,616 per head. Scotland comes after Wales on 2507 and England spends the least um, at 2,427. Is there any basis to the claim at all? Well, yes. So if you look at it as the rest of the UK, as in that homogenous group, our UK, as it often gets written. So basically, yeah. if, if you strip Scotland out of the UK figures, then yes, um, Scotland's figure is higher. So rest of UK, um, so the, uh, Northern Ireland, Wales and England combined, uh, the, the per capita figure then is 2,439, which is £68 per person lower than the Scottish figure. And is that basically because spending in England is lower than the rest of the devolved nations? Exactly, yeah. But because England is, is so huge, it really skews the figures for the rest of the UK. All these statistics are taken before COVID-19 affected things, though, aren't they? They are, yeah. So the, the most recent figures, and these are the ones that the SNP provided for us, and actually uh, they're the only ones, well, they're the most up-to-date ones that are available from the government. Um, they're 2019 20 figures so they only go up to the end of March last year obviously mm. each each of the constituent nations has spent a lot of money in their COVID response but that won't be reflected until the 2020-21 figures are collated and they, they won't be out until later on this year so we don't actually know the impact of COVID but um, as a spokesperson for the SNP said the, the figures that Nicola Sturgeon was basing her claim on were these 2019-20 figures. Yeah, and those are still comparable figures. Exactly, yeah. So what did we go with for our verdict? We went half true. So yeah, if you're looking at it as rest of the UK, as in our UK, then yes, Scotland is spending more per head. But if we're talking about the rest of the UK, as in the other three nations, looking at them individually, no, Scotland isn't spending the most. So Max, you were also looking at a claim by the Tory leader Douglas Ross about council tax, weren't you? 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, again, when he was addressing the first minister, um, he he said that the the SNP government had promised to reform council tax in three separate manifestos and hadn't followed through on that promise. Uh, his words were, you promised in three manifestos to reform council tax. Why are people still paying council tax? Any truth to that claim? Obviously, we know people are still paying council tax. Yeah, if you go back to the 2007 election manifesto, that, that's when the SNP made its boldest claims about council tax. They said in that one that they would scrap council tax and introduce a fairer system based on ability to pay. And that was the much touted three pence in the pound that they spoke about. They were going to add 3p onto income tax rates and use that to pay for local services. Uh, following that election, the Alex Salmond-led minority government, uh, they, they didn't go ahead and scrap council tax as promised. That was despite winning the backing of local authority group COSLA. But they did not get support in the Scottish Parliament. Labour and the Conservatives did not like the idea and didn't give them their backing. And they also, uh, the Westminster government had threatened to reduce the settlement that they would get if they went ahead and did that. So it was basically something they couldn't go ahead with. Uh, By 2011, they were still talking about coming up with a fairer system, but they, they weren't... They, they weren't so bold in their language. They weren't using the word scrap. They were talking about coming up with a fairer system to replace council tax. They were going to consult with others to do that. Um, and that, that that was, they were going to present it to the people at, at the following election, which would have been the 2016 election. So uh, you'll recall after that election, the SNP actually formed a majority government. Uh, they mm. did go ahead and they formed the Commission on Local Tax Reform. That was in 2014, so a few years after the election. Uh, they looked into it and they did consult widely uh, with various academics, people working in the sector, etc. Um, and they, the, the finding of that commission was that the current system of council tax must end. The Commission suggested several alternatives, but basically they said that uh, there would have to be some kind of recurrent tax on domestic property, but they did want to see that broadened out to include income tax as well. Um, Nothing happened on that again. And then by the 2016 manifesto, it it was watered down again, what what the SNP were promising. They were still talking about reforming council tax. and they were promising that money would be raised and go directly to head teachers to invest in schools. Um, by this point, there was a lot of talk about freezing council tax. It had been frozen for, uh, by 2016, it had been frozen for eight years. Um, but basically, the, the reforms that did go through, they weren't anywhere near as radical as what was promised previously. So in 2007, they had promised to scrap the council tax entirely. Yeah. Obviously, in 2021, the council tax still exists, yeah. although there's been some sort of slight tinkering around the edges being done. Yeah. Uh, so what was the verdict that we came up with on this claim? We went for mostly true. Um, hmm. I mean, they did promise to reform council tax quite radically to begin with, and then that has changed over the years to be less radical. They, they have reformed it a bit, nothing near to the extent that they had promised in the first place, but it's somewhat disingenuous of the Tories to, to to hold them to account for that because they they were the party that really opposed the, the scrapping of council tax following 2007. So the SNP did try to push ahead with that at the time, but couldn't because they couldn't win, win support. So yeah, they did promise to reform council tax. They've reformed it slightly, but 
not much and people are still paying council tax in 2021. You're listening to The FFS Show, a podcast about fact-checking and misinformation by The Ferret. Now, here's the second half of my interview with Vice News journalist David Gilbert. I started by asking him how QAnon had been connected to the UK. It's one of the most fascinating aspects of QAnon is that a conspiracy theory that is based entirely around US Secret Service and Donald yeah. Trump and US elections and Hollywood and the Democrats, that it has become a massive global conspiracy theory. And it has it, it's there's dozens groups of QAnon supporters in dozens of countries, like across Europe. There's a massive group in in Asia or in Japan, sorry. Um mm-hmm. and in Europe, Germany is probably number one and the UK is probably number two. How does the, the QAnon conspiracy get linked to the anti-vax conspiracy? And how do those two things sort of cross-pollinate? I suppose it all comes down to this kind of idea that there is a group or a cabal, to use QAnon's word, um, of elites who are basically controlling the world. And this is, this is an anti-Semitic trope that has been um, trotted out for decades um, George Soros is probably the one who's been the focus of most of this attention over the years. But with QAnon, obviously, they, they've kind of talked about how this um, group is running a child sex trafficking ring. But more recently, it's kind of morphed into where it connects is that the the COVID-19 has been described as a an experiment being run by mostly by Bill Gates. Um, mm. who again is one of these democratic elites um, and he is running COVID-19 uh, as a experiment in order to allow him roll out a vaccine which is a microchip in it so that he can then inject the entire global population and control the world. Yeah. So that ties obviously perfectly into the anti-vaxxers belief that you know for years, people have been viewed vaccines with huge suspicion and believe governments are trying to um, do various things to the to either their children or themselves um, through vaccine programs. So it's it's the pandemic coming about happening when it did is probably the worst thing that could have happened in terms of facilitating QAnon's growth globally. Yeah, and I suppose that's one of the interesting things about how these things are developing in the in the sort of to use a hackneyed phrase the kind of social media age because people don't know the origin of what the the, the sort of uh, small parts of the conspiracy theory they repeat they don't know that it's come from such a sort of self evidently ludicrous original uh, video or original you know position they're only kind of getting a little bit of the end of it um, and then repeating it and then amplifying it. Yeah, and like it's that's how it spreads. Is that you know there are really horrific, uh, nasty conspiracies that kind of QAnon believers believe about you know child torture and child rape, and it's yeah um, that stuff is you know they've successfully distanced that kind of core beliefs from the more palatable 
stuff about you know wanting to save the children that it's it's allowed it to spread unchecked really and um it makes it also very very hard to kind of put a figure on how many people believe in QAnon or QAnon related conspiracies because you know a lot of the people you will speak to who I might say kind of are QAnon believers will never wouldn't identify as QAnon and may never even have heard of QAnon. Where do you think the responsibility lies in terms of clamping down on the QAnon conspiracy and similar type conspiracies? Is it with government or is it with social media companies themselves? Is there a wider sort of political, is it the politicians themselves which are, who are amplifying and sort of incubating these things? Uh, obviously, there are there are some politicians who are amplifying this stuff, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I guess, is the obvious example in the US, where she's, you know, had a long history of supporting QAnon from the very beginning, from about a month after it began, she was talking about it online. Right. So she, you know, obviously she is to blame, and there are, there are a growing number of politicians in the US who are openly... QAnon supporting. Ultimately, it is the responsibility or the failure of social media companies across the board to first recognize soon enough that this was a major problem and then do enough to stop it. It was two and a half, nearly three years um, from the start of QAnon until Twitter, Facebook and YouTube really took any significant action against it. And in that time, the communities, hundreds of thousands, millions of people were radicalized um, by this conspiracy theory. It's not an easy thing to solve because, you know, at what point do you take it seriously enough to have a policy against it? And like there is a there is something to be said for not paying attention to it, because by paying attention to it, you automatically amplify it. But. It was very clear from early 2020 that this was a growing problem. Researchers and some journalists were kind of flagging it, but Facebook and Twitter and YouTube really didn't do anything to either ban the accounts or um, stop the amplification. And that I think that's the real issue is that they amplified these stories that, you know, if you clicked on one video on YouTube, then it was going to present you with 10 other videos that said the exact same thing and reinforced those ideas when they did take action yeah it was pretty effective this time around like facebook's action was pretty good they removed most of the big groups but the problem is there are dozens of other platforms where these people can you know congregate again and by the time facebook took action there was backup groups already in place on telegram and gab um, and other social networks by delaying their reaction, they not only allowed their own users to get radicalized, they allowed these groups to coordinate and um, put in place networks that they were able to continue to spread their disinformation even after they were knocked off mainstream platforms. So, yeah, I think I think social networks have a huge uh, questions to answer about this.
Now, Ali, you also looked at a claim from the Lib Dem leader, Willie Rennie, mm. didn't you? He, he spoke quite a lot about social security uh, during the debate. What, what was the check that you looked into? But specifically, the claim he was uh, he made was that the SNP had the opportunity to take control of social security powers, um, but handed them back to Westminster. And he said that, quote, you delayed the implementation of it by years. OK, so what, what did you find out about that? Willie Rennie's claim is that the Scottish government handed back powers to Westminster over Social Security. This is a reference to um, powers which were given to Scotland under the Scotland Act 2016. Mm -hmm. Under the the Scotland Act, a lot of things were further devolved, which had previously been reserved to Westminster. So the Scottish government got power over a number of um, benefits um, and were able to legislate in a number of new areas, including um, much more around Social Security. Um, This came after the Scottish independence referendum. And Mm -hmm. after that, people will remember the vow. A commission was set up to create a further devolution. Um, And that that um, was the Smith Commission, wasn't it? The Smith Commission, yeah. 11 benefits were devolved to Scotland, including uh, ill health and disability benefits, carers' allowances, funeral expenses, winter fuel payments, uh, housing payments, and some powers relating to universal credit. Mm -hmm. Um, The Scottish government was also sort of broadly given power to create new benefits and top up existing ones. It has been making these payments, though, hasn't it? Yeah, so it's been making payments uh, on some benefits. The Scottish government set up its own social security system to sort of enable it to administrate all the new benefits it had powers over. Payments over uh, the carers' allowance supplement, uh, payments for low-income families with children's school and nursery, some funeral expenses, uh, the young carers' grant and some job start grants have been being paid over the last couple of years. Okay. The government has also announced that the full rollout of devolved benefits in certain areas have been delayed. Right. So Scotland has, you know, obviously since we're talking 2016 was when uh, these powers were first devolved to the Scottish government. Some of them started getting paid in 2018. The SNP had pledged that the full benefit rollout would be complete by the end of uh, the current parliament. So that's in a few weeks now. Sure. But in 2019, um, Shirley Ann Somerville, who is the Social Security Minister, announced that full implementation of some of these uh, benefits would be delayed and wouldn't be complete until 2024. She said that this was to do with time take that it takes to set up the full infrastructure and also the transferring over of various existing benefits from the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions. Opposition parties continue to criticise the Scottish Government for the amount of time that it's taken to uh, roll out these benefits, mm-hmm. particularly because they uh, regularly urge... Uh, and campaign for more powers from the UK government. So it, lo- it looks like that was quite a fair comment from Willie Rennie then. What what did you go for in your verdict? We went with uh, half true. It's fair to say the Scottish government has not ruled out these benefits in as timely a fashion as they pledged they would mm-hmm, do. That's, mm-hmm. I think, without doubt. Um, however, they have made progress in ruling out some of the benefits and they are setting up the infrastructure in order to transfer the remaining benefits. So it's not like they 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 don't want benefit. They, yeah. they want to be able to administrate these benefits. It's just that they're taking longer than they had pledged. Sure, sure. So it, it, it's not fair to say that they handed it back to Westminster. No, it's not. It's, it's not that they turned down an opportunity. It's more that yeah. they took longer than they planned to <laughs> okay. uh, implement it. So, Ali, you looked at a claim from Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar, didn't you? What what was he saying about the Scottish government and its record on mental health services? Yeah, so he made a number of uh, claims around uh, Scotland's performance on mental health uh, during the um, 
current SNP government. Mm-hmm. But one claim that he picked out was that on 25,000 occasions during the pandemic, one of our fellow citizens has built up the courage, picked up the phone and called a crisis mental health service and the call has gone unanswered. Okay, so 25,000, that, that's quite a high figure over, I mean, is that over the entirety of the last year since the pandemic began? It seems to cover the period from around the start of the pandemic until uh, mid-February 2021, which is when okay, the figures so go up to. 11, 11 months, well, almost 12 months, actually. So what yeah. what did you find out? Was, was the claim true? Well, yeah, it seemed to be accurate. Anna Sarwar's claim came from a Freedom of Information request, which had mm-hmm. been done by Scottish Labour. They were able to reveal the number of answered and abandoned calls to Scotland's um, mental health crisis support line. That's the NHS 2024 Mental Health Hub. So, so these figures were specifically for the NHS 24 Mental Health Hub? Yeah, they were, yeah. yeah so specifically okay. for that service. Fine. Okay, so I take it we went with a verdict of true for this one then, did we? Yeah, so the figures revealed that from the start of the pandemic, the figures from the start of the pandemic, we uh, took that as being the 11th of March, which is when the World Health Organization designated COVID-19 mm-hmm. as a pandemic, until the figures, the end of the figures on the 17th of February. Uh, there were 93,772 calls made to mm-hmm. the NHS 24 Mental Health Hub. Of these, um, 68,883 were answered, uh, while just under 25,000 were abandoned by the caller. Okay. What that doesn't tell us is whether or not they, it, they, the caller abandoned the call themselves, you know, immediately or very quickly before somebody could answer, if you see what I mean. Um, sure. Particularly when you're calling a mental health hub, you know, it's quite likely that somebody might either decide they didn't want to speak to somebody or they felt mm-hmm. like they, they they weren't ready or you know various reasons could come into play but it certainly does represent that about a quarter of the calls to the number weren't answered by an operator now let, let's look at Lorna Slater the the co-leader of the Scottish Greens so she she spoke quite a lot in the debate didn't she about the impact the Greens have been having on supporting people living in poverty during the pandemic what what was the specific claim she made about evictions yeah, so Lorna Slater was sort of bigging up the role of the Scottish Greens mm. and how much impact they'd had in the last parliament. The claim that she made that we fact-checked was that we, as in the Scottish Greens, stopped evictions during the pandemic and during our budget negotiations, we won pandemic support payments for some of Scotland's poorest families. Now, the Greens, they're quite well known for having kind of held the SNP's feet to the coals during budget negotiations, haven't they? I mean, is there truth in yeah. this one? Did they push them quite hard on this? This sort of has two parts to it, this claim. But in mm. terms of uh, the stopping evictions during the pandemic, certainly the First Minister credited this, the part of the Greens in the development of that the ban on evictions, which did take okay. place and, yeah. uh, and it's been extended. In sort of pol- these sort of policy uh, things, it sometimes can be pretty difficult to be you know, extremely clear about who influenced who on yes. X issue. Yeah. The Greens can certainly take some credit in terms of impacting and pressurising the government into putting this and being strong on this this ban on evictions during the pandemic. Mm. So in that regard, I think they can take some credit. Um, with regard to the pandemic support payments, this was very specifically um, about the um, money that was put forward in the, bud- in the budget by um, Finance Secretary Kate Forbes. Mm-hmm. And this is, was a direct result of conversation uh, with negotiations with the Greens, because obviously, because the SNP is a minority government uh, yeah. currently, 
And it relies a lot on the Greens, doesn't it? Exactly. They, they have um, repeatedly required the support of the Greens to yep. pass their budget. This mm-hmm. year, actually, they actually got support from the Greens and the Lib Dems. Okay. But without the support of other MSPs, they won't pass their budget. Sure. So sure. the £100 million for uh, pandemic support payments to families on low incomes was a direct result of negotiations from the Greens and it amounted to over £100 uh, to 500,000 households who are receipt- in receipt of council tax reductions okay. and other payments to families of children who receive school meals, free school meals. So these are things that were, uh, we can clearly say were a direct result of the Greens negotiating with the Scottish government. Sure. So we gave the claim a mostly true verdict. Obviously, the pandemic support payments, they can take 100%, pretty mm-hmm. much 100% credit for because that was directly a result of their negotiations. The evictions is slightly more murky. While they obviously put a lot of pressure on and were very strong on this issue, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not quite so clear cut to say it was them that did it. Um, because obviously there seemed to be quite wide support for it. That's it for episode four of the FFS show. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Ali, will we still be in election season? I think we definitely will be. We're also looking for any leaflets you've had delivered to your house or you've seen online uh, from the various parties which had graphs or graphics which you think might look dodgy. If you see any of them, please get in touch with us at factcheck at theferret.scot. If you want to help us do more fact-checking and more podcasting, you can. Subscribe to The Ferret for just £3 a month. Go to theferret.scot forward slash subscribe. See you next time. See ya. See ya.